Well, let's start. Let's think about this for a minute. I want to give you a little question. I'll give you a quiz. I'd love to say there's a prize for you, but I couldn't get one organised. I'm going to give you a youth group prize. I'll tell you what that is in a minute, all right? Our ribs prize. Um, so, uh, this, I think, what I'm going to play to you in the moment would have to be one of the greatest guitar riffs or keyboard riffs, I think, ever. Ever. What is it? What, what could it be? What's racking your brains right now? What could that guitar riff be? Sweet Child of Mine by Guns N' Roses? No, no. There's something much more impressive than that. I'm going to play you just a couple bars. A couple... Thanks, Adrian. So what is it? Yes, yeah, Superstition, isn't it? By Stevie Wonder. Now, if you're very good, we might play it afterwards, but it's got a tenuous link to this sermon. But I thought it's the June long weekend and we should celebrate the Queen. So, um, <laughs> friends, as we open up one... Uh, yes, tenuous segue. But if we open up one Samuel, as we, as we will, and hope you've got it open in front of you and you will continue this series, it's, it's Superstition. Superstition, that's the danger of religion. And that's really the theme of 1 Samuel chapter 4. If I do these things, then God will do what I want. He'll have to act. We might say, if I do this, I'll force his hand. If I say these prayers, and in this way, and at this place, well, then God will only have to, have to do what I want him to do. If only I can harness the power of God... We might say, then God will work in my favour. You could argue that's what religion is in a nutshell, isn't it? That's, that's religion. Our attempts to access the power of God so we get what we want. That's what religion is. But of course that misunderstands the power of God. And to quote Stevie Wonder, superstition, it ain't the way. So how about I pray for us as we look in 1 Samuel chapter 4 and ask God to speak to us. Father, thank you for your goodness and kindness to us. Thank you, God, that you're God who speaks. Lord, we don't need to, we don't need to uh, rely on anything but you and your power. Lord, we pray um, that today that you would focus our hearts and our minds, help us to hear your words and to put them into practice. Thank you, Lord God. Amen. Well, if you do open your Bibles up to 1 Samuel chapter 4, uh, verse 1, you'll see that it's split into two parts. Verse 1a is the concluding verse of last week, of chapter 3. You see it? And Samuel's word came to all Israel. God's word. Through the prophet, Samuel came to all Israel. Samuel has been, remember, the incre increasingly the focus of our attention. In chapter 3, he very much stepped into the limelight, into the spotlight. But in 4 verse 1b, the second half, there's a shift. So the story of the old regime, the, the old leadership, well, that's, that's crumbling away. That's dying off. And that story must be told. There are lessons to be learnt. Now, we'll come back to Samuel, Israel's new leadership, in chapter 7. We have a bit of a break from Samuel over the next couple of weeks. But now in chapter 4, the spotlight shifts again and is now on the Ark of the Covenant. The Lord needs to teach Israel some lessons in archaeology. Yep. I thought it was funny. Actually, my kids thought it was funny last night when I told them. Um, 
Anyway, so the chapter four, moving quickly along, the, the uh, chapter four splits into two sections. You can see them there. There's one to 11 and then 12 to 22. The first section reports two battles with the Philistines and two significant deaths. Or as you can see, there are lots of deaths, aren't they? And the second, uh, verses 12 to 22, relates to the news from the battlefield coming back to Shiloh. And again, we, 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 uh, well, we, we hear from old Eli. Now, I'll give you a bit of a map, because who doesn't like maps? Um, as you can see, uh, where I'll try to point it out to you. There's Aphek, all right, and there's Shiloh. And this sort of area here is Philistia, or the Philistines, and then sort of there's Ephraim and sort of Israel, uh, where it sort of covers that sort of area. Um, that, that map actually isn't exactly on the date that we're talking about. It's a bit afterwards, and so just ignore those other um, little notes, but you can roughly see what we're talking about. We can presume that somewhere between those uh, two places, Aphek and Shiloh, um, that's where the battles were fought. So Aphek is where the Philistines were assembled, and uh, that was located on this coastal highway north of the Philistine cities. It's about 35 kilometres um, from Shiloh, that distance there. Okay, and we're not entirely sure where Ebenezer was, which is mentioned in verse 1, but most say it was a little east of Aphek. All right, well, let's get, um, let's get stuck in, shall we? Uh, Israel's mistaken theology. If you've got an outline there from your bulletin, that'll help as well. We don't have to read very far to hear that Israel had not fared well against the Philistines. So far, so bad. Uh, verse 2 tells us that in this first battle, Israel were defeated and about 4,000 died. Now, when the surviving soldiers returned, we're told the elders ask, well, they ask a good question in verse 3. Why did the Lord bring defeat upon us today before the Philistines? Now, notice, too, that they acknowledge God, God is at work and God is active, but not acting in their favour, they believe. So they brainstorm, they get an answer together, they think of some uh, conclusion here and the elders get together and they come up with this. Uh, Let us bring the Ark of the Lord's Covenant from Shiloh so that it may go with us and save us from the hand of our enemies. Now we we heard a little about the Ark last week. It was the gold-covered box which housed the Ten Commandments. Again, if it helps, think Indiana Jones. Um, A bit like that. It was was also uh, held in the Holy of Holies. So that was the the area at the back of the tabernacle behind a very thick curtain. That's where where it was held. Now, it represented God's covenant and it represented the demands of God's covenant for his people. So as we heard last week, the ark pointed to the God of Israel who saves, the God of Israel who, who rules, who speaks and who forgives. And the ark was the sign of, leading, of the Lord leading his people, especially in battle. Now this may well have come up in the forefront of their minds as they brainstormed how to answer this question and how they came up with this answer. Perhaps they remembered how central the ark had been when when the Israelites crossed the Jordan in Joshua 3 and 4. Perhaps they remembered how central the ark had been when when the walls of Jericho came down in in Joshua chapter 6. Perhaps they were thinking, oh, let's let's go back to those those great days. Let's go back to those days of faith where, and maybe then we'll, we'll experience one of God's deliverances. Maybe we'll be like that. 
Well, in any case, they, that's, that's, they decided to bring the Ark of the Lord's Covenant from Shiloh so that it may go with, well, go with us and save us from the hand of our enemies. So this was their assumption. If we bring the Ark to the battle, well, the Lord will be forced to deliver us to, uh, to protect his honour. If we wheel the Ark out, well, should something happen to the Ark, it would make God the loser. So, and, and naturally, that would, God would never allow that to happen. He'll have to save us now with the ark here. His honour's at stake. So they've now, they've now got God under pressure, so to speak, or they're trying to, because they have this sign of his presence. He won't let them lose now the ark's here. To have God's furniture is to have God's power. The ark is their religious ace in the hole. So I figure what's going on here is, is that the elders are a little like teenagers. Let me explain. So without letting you know, without consulting you as parents, without running anything by you at all, they make plans with their friends. And for their little social activity, their catch-up, their upcoming party, whatever it might be, a movie... They're all going out, all the friends are going out, a fun night is planned. And then comes the evening, about 5.30, 6 o'clock on average, speaking from experience. Um, they approach you and they ask to attend this evening. You've heard nothing about it at all. They might ask even to be driven somewhere. And if they're old enough, well, they'll ask for the car. Now, what do you call these tactics? And their tactics, believe me, they are. They're well thought through. They, I think they're high-pressure tactics, aren't they? That's what they are. And after that, usually some sort of argument ensues, and it goes something like this. Listen, son or daughter, this is the way you do it. Listen carefully. I'm going to explain again. You ask first, then you plan. You don't plan first and then ask. That won't work for you. It won't go well. You see, they, these high-pressure tactics, um, they are high-pressure tactics because if the parent says no, well, then I'm the bad guy, aren't I? Everyone else is going. I have to say yes. So the underlying assumption from the little teenage cherub is... Um, <laughs> is I've made all these plans and if you don't come through on your end, your reputation will be zero. Well, I think Israel are trying to do a similar thing with God. Uh, they're trying to twist God's arm. That's not faith, is it? No, no, no. That's, that's superstition. And one commentator called it rabbit foot theology. <laughs> I like that. When God's people operate in this way, our concern is not to seek God, but to control him, to harness his power, not to submit to God, but to use him. So we prefer religious magic to spiritual holiness. We are interested in success, not repentance and faith. Well, in spite of Israelite enthusiasm, they all cheer, and you can see it in verse 5, you know, wheeling God out is always good for morale. Uh, and there's Philistine alarm, despite that, in verse 7 and 8. Uh, well, the plan failed. Verse 10. So the Philistines fought, and the Israelites were defeated, and every man fled to his tent. I'm not quite sure what his tent's going to do, but anyway, that's where they went. 
But worse still, the ark was captured. The Lord had suffered a great defeat, they will say. He was unable to come up with the goods for Israel. Let's make a few points of, well, let's note two implications at this point. First is that God will suffer shame rather than allow you to carry on a false relationship with him. That's the first. And second, God will allow you to be disappointed with him if it will awaken you to the sort of God he really is. See, we've also seen something important about God's power. The power of God cannot be manipulated by human activities. Did they really think that wheeling out the ark would bring God's power to their side? Did they really think that that's the way God works? That's, that's just religion, isn't it? And, what, and that's what God is dead against, trying to harness the power of God for my own advantage. That's what religion is. The lesson for Israel is the same for us. The Ark of the Covenant of the Lord could not guarantee Israel's safety. No religious act will. So my church attendance. Now church is, is something we get to do. It's a great privilege. It's good to be here. But it won't save us. It won't make us better off with God and his eyes. Uh, it won't... Uh, it, it, like like our, even our Bible reading. Uh, my giving. My meditation. Prayer. No religious activity can manipulate God's power to bring me success, prosperity or happiness. God's power is not like that. It's not, our, it's not at our disposal. God's power is God's power. Now this little account so far in chapter 4 should impress this on us. So we need to be on the lookout in our own lives for this superstitious theology or using that phrase again, rabbit foot theology. Now let me give you another example. Uh, now this is not something that we, we do a lot here um, and, and I think as you'll see there's good reason not to necessarily start up this type of thing. But what's behind the church, what's behind our church's 24-hour prayer vigil? Is it a desire to be sincere and heartfelt with God, to plead with him for some matter? Or is there some thinking that if we simply organise and orchestrate our coverage, I don't like that word at all when it comes to prayer, then God would be forced to grant whatever we're praying about? Is that what's behind it? Are we trying to manipulate God? Good question to ask. What about when we read our Bible, when we, when we pray, when we have our, our quiet time, some people call them a devotional time alone. Is it delight in meeting with God or is it a belief that oh, things are going to go better just when I do this, if I tick this box? We need to be careful and watch out for uh, superstitious theology. Well, God is a God who keeps his word. Uh, the Lord's threat back in chapter 2, verses 25 and 34, will be fulfilled. And it's, and it's, uh, it's hard reading, really. Let's pick things up in verse 4 again. So the people sent men to Shiloh and they brought, the ark of the, uh, they brought back the ark of the covenant of the Lord Almighty who is enthroned between the cherubim. That, by the way, that whole sentence is the official title of, um, of the ark. Anyway, halfway through verse 4, key little sentence here, and Eli's sons, Hophni and Phinehas, were there with the ark of the covenant of God. Right, that, okay. 
So that's who's behind the idea then, Hophni and Phinehas. Can Israel really appeal to the promises of God, represented by the ark, when the ark is being carried by these two good-for-nothings who despise God? Israel's plans uh, of bringing the ark as the key to victory, well, Israel's Israel plan uh, of bringing the ark as the key to victory, well, the Lord will use it to carry out his purpose, uh, to carry out his purpose to put Hophni and Phinehas to death. The reality of it was that on, that on this day, what seemed to be dishonour to God, what seemed to dishonour God, God was in fact beginning to protect his honour and restore it. That's the reality of this day. God may well be despised in, the, in Philistia for a little while, but he will not be despised anymore in Shiloh. God is going about fulfilling his word, his promises. Yes, there is judgment, but there's also grace too. You see, God is removing false prophets who were in the business of causing his people to, to go astray. So he removes them. And with the death of Eli, the old leadership had passed away. The way is now clear for Samuel, the man God had called. Well, this final episode that we come, about, uh, come across with Eli... Um, it's, it's sad, and in some ways there's, it's, it's pitiful. Verse 12, our focus turns back to old Eli. He was um, overweight. He was unable to really move. Verse 13 tells us he was sitting by the side of the road. He's looking out, but he can't see anything. He's now completely blind, and his heart is agitated. He seems to know that no disaster has come. He probably heard the sound of the, the pounding of the feet of this fleeing messenger's footsteps as he ran into town from the battle. Um, and that's not a short stroll. We're talking about 35 kilometres. Eli wouldn't have known of this messenger's torn clothes. That's a sign of mourning and grief. I, I picture him um, running into town with streams of uh, tears streaming down his face. Uh, one look at him and you dread what he's about to tell you. So Eli hears the uproar when the news gets to the town. He'll only know why the messenger bothers, why there's this uproar when the messenger bothers to tell him the news. But I reckon he might have some idea. We note in verse 13 that he's, he's sitting by the side of the road. That actually could be translated, he's sitting at the gate. Uh, perhaps the messenger didn't even notice Eli. He ran straight by him. That's, how, that's Eli's significance these days. Well, after hearing the town's cry and, and commotion, Eli asks in verse 14, what's the meaning of this uproar? Well, he now gets the news that brought so much turmoil on this day in Shiloh. Israel has fled. There's been a great slaughter. Both your sons have died and the ark of God was captured, verse 17. And that was the fatal blow. Not, not Phinehas and Hophni's death but the capture of the ark. See, his heart was already trembling, uh, fearing for the ark. Uh, in verse 13, now this was too much. He fell back in his chair and he snapped his neck and he died. But the news doesn't get any better for another local. Eli's uh, daughter-in-law, Phineas, Phineas's wife, um, she dies in childbirth following the shock news of her husband's death. 
Her last words sum up the dark day, verses 21 to 22. In these words, she probably taught more truth about God than her husband, uh, her husband Phineas ever did in his entire life. Verse, 20, uh, verse 21, 22, The glory has departed from Israel, for the ark of God has been captured. The, the, the truth is the glory of the Lord had indeed departed, but not because the ark had been captured. Phineas's wife was wrong. The ark had been captured because the glory of the Lord had departed. You see? The glory of the Lord had already departed Israel when they wheeled the ark of God out, when they appointed Hophni and Phineas. The glory of the Lord had already departed. Well, friends, let's tie some things together here. Uh, there is good news. As we read through our Bibles, we get a taste of this good news. And finally, when we open our New Testaments and we hear of Jesus, there's much good news. So the Bible story calls us today to think differently about God's glory. The question is then, where is the glory now? Where is God's glory now? Well, John chapter 1, verse 14 says, The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son, who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. Friends, Jesus is not only the glory of God, but of course he's the power of God. Let's not get distracted by religion. This is what it means to know the power of God. And we use the words from the Apostle Paul in Ephesians 1 and 2. The Apostle prays that you might know the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ, which he raised from the dead and seated him at the right hand of the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is, every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. Across the chapter 2, verse 1. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked. Verse 4. But God, who is rich in mercy because of his great love for us, with which he, he loved us, made us alive with Christ, together with Christ. By grace you have been saved, and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may, be, may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. There's the glory of God in Jesus Christ, and there is the power of God working in our lives by the cross. How about we pray? Father, we, uh, we thank you for um, your goodness to us. We thank you, God, that you're a God who um, uh, speaks to us. Lord, we pray that we don't get caught up in that trap of, um, of superstition, of religion, of trying to twist your arm so that you'll work in our favour. But in Lord, we, instead, Lord, we pray that we would, um, by faith and repentance, as we trust in you, um, Lord, we would, we would live for you. And Lord, as we read in Ephesians chapter 1 there, we pray, Lord, that we would know your glory and your power, and that is in your Son, Jesus. We thank you, Lord, that we're not saved by anything that we do. We're saved by your grace, your love for us, not by works, not by anything religious, but what you've done for us. And Lord, that power is, is just so immense. 
We thank you for the forgiveness that comes with trusting in Jesus. We thank you that um, in Jesus we know you, we know your glory, we know your power. Amen.